Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Unfiltered. I am your host, Kaya McCullough, and I am so excited to bring you another episode of this wonderful podcast I have created. Um, You already know what it is. We're going to talk about the intersection of race and politics, sports, pop culture, you name it. We're talking about it completely unfiltered through the lens of my life experience. And on that note, I have another really special guest this week, somebody who has quite literally made me the woman I am today and I'm honestly not really sure if I'd be alive without her um so I'm super excited to have her on to talk about our lives together and that is my cousin McKenna Bonds she's honestly more like a sister we're only seven months apart um I'm older (laughs) but yeah so I'm super excited to have her here and we're basically going to be talking about how it was growing up together as two young black biracial girls in Southern California, um, which definitely had its problems, and how our identities were shaped and influenced by each other, and how that, you know, made us the women that we are today. So I'm super excited to have her on. Keep listening. It's going to be a great conversation, and I'm super excited for you guys to be here. Hello, Kenna. Hello. Um, would you like to introduce yourself to the pod? Yes, no, maybe so. God. <laughs> How should I introduce myself? Um, just your name, what you do, you know, the vibes. Um, sure. Well, as Kaya said, I am Kaya's cousin, but I'm more like her sister. Um, my name is McKenna. I'm currently in school. Hopefully, um, well, I should be done shortly, and I will be a designer. So yeah, hopefully everything goes well within the next month. No more corona. No, no more working. corona. Yeah, you're gonna have working, to. I'm gonna yeah. put your ats. I'm gonna put your ats at the end of this episode so people can hit you up to have you design their houses for them. You know, yeah. got to get that networking in. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm going to share a story. You can let me know if you remember this. If you don't, but. I start the podcast by telling a story that kind of familiarizes the listeners and the viewers with my guest. So this one um, really jumped out at me. Uh, So anybody who knows me probably knows I really like Disneyland. And I mean, I used to go with my dad uh, two to three times a week growing up. And a lot of times Kenna would come with us. And, you know, for not obvious reasons, uh, people used to think that we were twins a lot of the times, um, which, you know, I don't really get because we don't look super similar, but you know how white people are in Orange County. Um, but I remember my favorite ride now is Indiana Jones. I remember the very first time that I rode it, I it was with my dad and with McKenna and we went on, we waited in line for like an hour the ride is super scary for for young people, like for sure. Like it's a whole bunch of like hellfire imagery and ghosts shooting you and bugs and rats. And the entire, I was so excited to see it. Like I was so excited for my dad to be so proud of me. And the entire first time I closed my eyes. And after we, after we got off the ride, my dad was like, well, McKenna kept her eyes open. Like McKenna, you know, was brave enough to keep her eyes open the whole ride. And I was just devastated because I didn't because I was like such a scaredy cat. And so I literally made us go back in line to wait for like another hour, half hour. 
and I made us ride the ride again so that <laughs> I could be brave like her. <laughs> and I think that is a good um, kind of reflection of how our relationship is now. Even though I'm older, I learn a lot from her all the time. And um, I always try and be brave like her. But yeah, do you remember that? I don't. <laughs> I um, really don't. See, I remember us going to Disneyland, but I don't remember the events that occurred while at Disneyland, other than the restroom trip. Yeah, I mean, that probably, like, sticks out to me because how traumatic it was, because I was literally so embarrassed. I felt like a failure to my father, like, because that was his favorite ride, too, and, like, you were so brave, and I was just like, you know, I suck. <laughs> no, you don't. No, you didn't. Okay, well, that's actually a good segue story into the first topic. And, you know, it's kind of about our childhood and how similar and how different we were growing up, but how, you know, a lot of the times we only really had each other to look to as like an example of a biracial, black biracial person around us. Um, Whether that was because we both lived with our mothers together. Oh, yeah, background. We lived together growing up. So after my parents got divorced, we moved in, our mothers are sisters. Um, And so we moved in together, we lived together in a house. So we I mean, we really are like sisters when I say that. Um, So whether our identities being very parallel were because, you know, we were surrounded by our white mothers and white people in South Orange County, or I don't know, another reason. Um, Needless to say, we were very, um, we were always compared and always contrasted um, and a lot of times blend. And so one of the things that I remembered and I wanted to talk about was how we got the name Micaiah. Do you remember that? Yeah. So people like would literally get so confused by us because we were the only like little black biracial girls that they literally couldn't remember who we were. And our moms would just be like, yeah, just call him Micaiah. It's easier. So, what are your thoughts yeah. on that now? I mean, I kind of like it. I think it's kind of cute. <laughs> I mean, because we were always together. So it was like um, like the both of us. I don't know. It was like our identity. Yeah. So to speak. Like if somebody seen you or I, it was the both of us. So, I mean, as long as we were, we were still Kenna and Kaya, but like together we were Makaya. Yeah. And I think that's actually really cute. I mean, maybe I'll name, I mean, I think that would be selfish of me to name like a daughter with the name Micaiah, you know, because my name's Kaya, but that's a cute little name if I do say so myself. <laughs> you can use my middle name. I'm going to, don't worry. Um, yeah. I already told you that. <laughs> I know, but ooh, spilling the beans. No, but yeah, I, I mean, I think like the whole Micaiah thing is like, a really good introductory point into how combined our identities were and you know growing up I think we paralleled each other in a lot of ways obviously we were very different I was more sporty you were more Mm -hmm. artistic than me but we still were very similar um can you talk about a little bit about how growing up in South Orange County, surrounded by people who didn't look like you, was? Yeah. Um, I actually remember in elementary school not having anybody look like me. There was probably, like, one little boy that looked like me. 
Um, and then um, as I got a little bit older, my mom introduced me to cheer and I started cheering for Pop Warner. Um, and when I did that, I kind of realized that there was and wasn't a lot of people that look like me. There were people that looked like me, but they didn't look exactly like me, obviously, because they weren't black, but they were still part of a like minority. Um, but yeah, it was very interesting, like growing up, not seeing people that look like you, because I mean, you're young enough to not understand, like maybe why they don't look like you, but you notice it. It's not something that is like going to stand out to you, like at my age now, where I can obviously see it and kind of pinpoint it then I didn't really know how to address it so I think it was something that was like more on the back burner of my life like yes I acknowledged it but no it wasn't like a focus but I could definitely tell like I felt as though sometimes I would be treated differently in certain scenarios um in comparison to like the other little girls obviously because I was you know the curly haired girl that is a little bit darker that doesn't look like any of the other girls here that has a little bit more of an attitude well not really but like I had an attitude growing up so um a little bit more of an attitude like than these other girls like I was not taking nothing from anybody I still don't but back then you couldn't tell me nothing so like it was very different from like the little girls that I grew up against like around yeah. And I think that goes, I, I mean, I have shared a very similar experience to anybody who knows me, um, not really growing up around people who looks like me, but that's why I'm saying, I think I, I didn't really realize the impact of having you around specifically exactly. until I was a lot older because I didn't realize how much that helped guide me in my own identity formation. Because honestly, like, I've mentioned this before, even on this podcast, like I grew up not really, I literally, when I was younger, could not figure out why I did not look like my mom. Like I had different hair, different skin, didn't look like her really. And it bothered me. But I think the thing that kind of grounded me a lot of times was the fact that, okay, I have a family member who looks very, very, very similar to me and who I can see myself in. And I think I think it was really important for me having somebody who at least, even if we didn't acknowledge it like consciously, it was very important having somebody who whose experiences would mirror mine because I could see myself in somebody and I didn't have to necessarily yeah. look towards the television to see myself in somebody else. And it's interesting. It's, it's just an interesting dynamic because you're younger than me. And like, I feel like a lot of people, you know, put something in being older than other people but I don't know I just I just have always been very guided by you and I guess do you feel similarly do you feel different um expand on that um now that I think about it as we're talking about it I think there's something very comforting about the fact that like we would go into environments where you know there wasn't people that look like us but we would have each other at the end so like, I'm thinking of, this is a story, I guess you can say. Um, but like when we would go to the SWAT meet, like oh. we didn't look like anybody there. We did not, but like, we look like each other. So it was like comforting for the fact that like, okay, well I have Kaya with me. So like, if they're looking at me, they're looking at the both of us. Like it wasn't a feeling of like, okay, well, you know, at least I have somebody that looks like me because we always, we were literally always together. We yeah. did a lot of activities together. So I think it became very normal for us to have like the comfort of each other. And I think that's helped us as we've like gotten older. There's a lot of similarities between us 
I mean, yeah. yes, we have our differences, but like, I think <laughs> in the end, it's bonded us a lot more than like anything else has. Just yeah. similar situations. No, 100%. As you were talking, I was just remembering that one photo at the swap meet where we're, yes. <laughs> we're like back to back. We need to recreate that. Yeah. I'm for sure going to link that um, photo yeah. <laughs> in this episode it. because it really just, it really does just reflect like our camaraderie and having each other. And, you know, you said that that experience bonded us, but I also, there's been a lot of stuff in our life, like trauma wise. Yeah that has bonded us um absolutely (laughs) how do you think that has like informed our relationship um with each other and how do you think you know that's influenced us growing up together um well from childhood to adulthood uh we've (laughs) dealt with a lot um but I don't know I think still just on the comfort level like there there's a different amount of comfort that I think you get when you have at least like a sibling yeah. or someone close to you and it almost felt as though like we I, I say this all the time that like we were must have been twin sisters or something in a past life with like yeah. our connection to each other because the way that we are I don't know like the way that we work together is really actually fascinating um, <laughs> in a lot of like like we get along so well yes we fight like sisters but we also get along pro- probably better than sisters in other scenarios um, but I think that's what's like helped us because we've always been the glue for the other person when we needed them in a traumatic situation. And if one of us, you know, doesn't know how to deal with something, I feel like the other one has more of like an answer or an idea of how to deal with it. So in that case, we've always, you know, been what we needed to for the other person. And plus, we've gone through like the traumatic situations together. So we've always been able to kind of count on the other one as like one is not doing so well, the other one can, you know, step up and be that for the other. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It's crazy because I see that direct line of like dealing with really traumatic situations as kids together. Like I see that direct line to how we deal with traumatic situations together now or separate, but like my trauma response, especially when it has to do with you, I get like so, so, so protective. And I feel like that's a direct like correlation from what happened to us when we were younger. And obviously like we don't need to get into all of that now, but I mean, I think it just goes to show again, just reemphasizing like how important it is having people who look like you and who can empathize with you and who can sympathize with you and sit there and understand and, you know, help you carry the burden of, of life. (laughs) So, yeah, I, I, I would say that having each other was a, a real blessing in disguise. Like I know the circumstances that led us to living together and being so close, like weren't necessarily super ideal, but mm-hmm. I mean, in the end, I think it was the best situation. Yeah, definitely. One way or another. So kind of segueing from that, we live together. I don't even, again, people, as you listen and watch this podcast, like you'll realize I have a really convoluted sense of time when it comes to my childhood. I think it's a trauma okay. response. I'm working through it in therapy, but <laughs> so I don't, I don't know the exact years or dates that we lived together, but I do know after my parents got divorced, we moved in together 
we lived in Mission Viejo and um, then you and your mom moved away to Ontario, which is a lot more diverse. It's in the IE. Um, So I was wondering if if you could talk about that transition for you. I mean, honestly, I feel like I don't even know very much about this. So I'm really curious to hear, like, what was that transition like from you going to an area that was predominantly white um, into an area that was predominantly like people of color? And was that experience different or harder for you being that it was you and your mom, your mom who is white? So I'm curious. Um, Yeah. So I remember what age I moved out there. I remember I started probably, oh, it was like February of my fifth, like of fifth grade um, when I moved out there. So I was a little bit older at this point, Um, but it was complete 180 from Orange County completely like completely and I think that was probably one of the best things that my mom could have done for me little does she probably think so but like the experiences that I've gotten from living like living out there other than from going to college like was was what I needed because I you know I started to see more people that look like me you know I Yes, you know, I felt as though I couldn't fit in a lot in Orange County, but in some ways, like I felt the same way where I lived in the Inland Empire. You know, I'm, uh, I don't want to say this, but like I'm a pretty light skinned girl, you know, who is, you know, I, yeah, exactly that basically. But like it was hard for me to sometimes fit in with, you know, the people of color because, you know, I wasn't dark enough or my hair wasn't curly enough for them. Or like, it was like, I wasn't meeting their standards, neither was I in Orange County. So sometimes I would felt, I would feel like, you know, I couldn't really fit on either end. But I felt like there was more people that, you know, were biracial um, and yeah. that kind of could understand, you know, like the things that I would go through on an everyday basis out here versus in Orange County. It was, it was completely different because I started to actually feel like, okay, maybe I could fit in here. Because as I look around, you know, it's, predominantly people that you know look like me or you know have an idea of what I've gone through for the past few years of my life do you think that that like experience was just really affirming for you I know you said that you you know obviously moving to a new area in and of itself is going to be like a huge adjustment and then adjusting to essentially what is an entirely different culture um do you think overall though it was it was really affirming for you just having more people who who weren't me (laughs) that actually looked like you? Yes. I mean, I, we still would drive all the way out to come see you guys every once in a while, but like it was, it was, it just was a good feeling to know like there was more people that like look like me and I had, you know, different influences and I felt like I learned more about, you know, people of color and my side of people of color when I moved to the Inland Empire versus when I lived in Orange County, you know, I had more influences with my hair or like what to do. Yeah. Hair wise, skin, like all of it. It was like more so like people were trying to show me because unfortunately for my mom, she is a white woman. So, you know, she wasn't the best with my hair um, and all of that. Um, Childhood pictures can speak for themselves, but like, for me to be around people that kind of knew stuff like that and could help me was something big for me. Like I finally knew, you know, what type of product to put in my hair that would make it look nice or like how to do my hair in certain styles that would, you know, benefit me and look pretty. 
So for me, it was literally completely different from what I would experience if I feel like if I would have lived in Orange County. Well, and I think that like, not to, not to like make this like weird, but I mean, we really are kind of like a social experiment because we, I mean, we grew up with very similar backgrounds. We grew up together and then we kind of mm-hmm. diverged. And even, even the way, like seeing the differences between us, not that, you know, they're, they're not like super huge or anything, but just seeing the differences between us, especially with people who know us. Um, and you know, kind of analyzing how much of that was a product of like where we grew up, um, I think is really interesting. And especially when we talk about it in the context of like the bubble of Orange County, which as you know, is like very conservative, very religious, like very white. Um, And like conversations that I've had with my friends, basically being like, yeah, I really couldn't see past this like bubble that was clouding us. I think it's really interesting just to see, you know, even though I wasn't necessarily living under the haze of the bubble, like I'm woke as fuck, like whatever. I managed to escape it, but just even just like in our diction, um, like the way we think differently, (laughs) the people that we date. um, Oh, yeah. That as well. I mean, it's significant. And I think it just goes to show like how, how much impact the environment that, you know, you grow up in has on you and I think why it's important that we we start having people that look like us like be around us all the time um because I I often wonder like what would have happened if I would have moved out there with with you guys like who I would have be who I would have been and like how my experiences would have been differently informed yeah Um, another thing one thing I wanted to touch on was both of us I mean Less so me, but both of us were raised by single mothers predominantly. Um, Mm -hmm. What, how do you think that that experience has like transformed your worldview? Um, Whether that's on men or just, you know, how society treats women or I don't know, anything kind of relating to that. What do you think, how do you think that's impacted your growth and like your development as a woman of color? Um. Well, I think one of the like biggest things that my mom being a single mother has shown me is just independence. Yeah. For me, independence is my biggest thing. That's like one of my downfalls, I'd say, in a relationship. I'm not affectionate. I love my independence and I love, you know, my solidarity. I love to be alone. Um, and I've seen that with my mom. She has so much strength in being able to be alone. And I think one thing that I've learned actually now at my age, and I'm not very old, but I feel like I've learned. And I think it's something that people uh, forget a lot is like this idea of being alone is not a bad thing. There's not a negative that comes from being alone and being alone does not make you lonely. There's a difference between being alone and being lonely. And I think being able to be alone is a very strong characteristic that a lot of people kind of overlook. Because there's so much strength in being able to, you know, function on your own. And at that raise a child, um, which I can only, you know, applaud my mom so much for being able to do it the way that she did. Because I think I came out, you know, a great woman. But I do appreciate the fact that, you know, she she showed me that, like, if you can be alone and be strong and okay. And just because others, you know, may view you as lonely doesn't mean that you are. Um, 
I don't know. I think independence is beautiful. And I think it's something that people need to appreciate and kind of celebrate a little bit more. I I feel like we um, look at this idea and especially with social media, you know, we, we come up with these ideas of like, we have to have somebody else in order to be happy. And we put ourselves in situations with people, whether we're happy or not, because we feel as though it would be in the best interest of the child. Yeah. And reality, sometimes it won't be such. So some, you know, sometimes I wonder, like, if my mom wasn't a single mother, if I would, you know, be the same person I am today, um, and have like a lot of the strength that I do have today. Um, but I I don't want to test it. I I wouldn't (laughs) want to go back in time and change it any other way. I like the woman that I've become and who I'm becoming, but I think it's really important to just realize like independence is beautiful. Hey, I'm with you there. (laughs) These men are terrible right now (laughs) at our age. Like, I'm sorry, but they, they don't know what commitment is. So I'm not going to commit to anybody else. Hey, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I, you know, I know we got the same head for that. (laughs) I say that stuff on social media all the time. So that's no surprise to anybody. But as you were talking about that, especially like with independence and, you know, having single mothers or just having honestly, like, I don't go a lot into like describing my family structure with like new people because it is so blended and it is so atypical but I do think that there's a certain power and gift and love that becomes so much more emphasized when it becomes a case of like where you get to pick the community that you're you're surrounded by like you get to pick the people that you know we don't have a very huge family and so we oftentimes got to create like our own sense of family and a and a create our own like family structure that worked for us. And I think honestly, it personally like influenced me in a really positive way. Like being able to live in a household with like all women might sound very like daunting for some, but I mean, for me, I think it really was something that, you know, made me the strong woman that I am today. Like you said, like just independent, fiercely independent, like our moms always handled their business like I know my mom was like pregnant and putting herself through a master's program while watching Grammy, like as she was deteriorating mentally. So like I have, I think, developed this strength of self and this independence, like being surrounded by your mom and my mom and you and just seeing like, you know, we're women, but we can have it fucking all like we really can have it all. And, and you know, apologetically. Yeah, and we can we can create these systems of support that aren't dependent or inherent on like a man necessarily. Yeah. Like we can be we can develop correctly and we can become strong without like the presence of like necessarily a male figure. And I, I know I had my dad and like that's a whole complicated history. Um and he was very much present in my life, but I really do like seek like I just I feel such power from reflecting on like where we came from and mm-hmm. and how we were um but yeah so I one thing I want to touch on too is like code switching I don't know if you code switch I don't hear you code switch very often code switching um, as in as in like I mean for me like when I'm when I'm in my white bubble 
I speak differently than when I'm especially yeah. around you. Like, like it happens mostly when I'm with you, to be honest, or when I'm around other black folks or um, with other people of color where I'm, I'm more comfortable. And obviously, like, I wasn't raised in an area where, you know, I learned to talk a certain way, but just being around, like, all the people of color and the black people that I've had in my life, like, there definitely is that aspect of there. What do you think is, you know... A benefit of code switching and why do you even think it's like necessary for us to be able to do and like what are the implications of that in society sorry that's a loaded question but um yeah I'm, I'll start off with um I actually do it every on an everyday basis um I code switch on and off of my work um so I'm entering a career field that is predominantly you know white um yeah. and it's a lot of women as well so I have learned that I need to is this repeating I feel like I can hear myself oh no you're good <laughs> okay um but I'm entering a field you know where I feel like I have to sometimes kind of make myself a little bit more presentable um because I am in competition and sometimes you know we if it is an industry that is predominantly white why are they going to choose the girl that's biracial who doesn't speak as properly as, you know, the white woman that speaks properly. So I realized that a lot of times in my everyday life, I have to speak um, more predominantly. And, um, but when I go home or, you know, when I'm around my friends, I notice I do code switch uh, or even around family more so. Like I'm more comfortable with you guys. So, I mean, I don't really care to like impress you with my conversations like I'm not going to use my big words to try to get you to like catch on because I know you're going to be like McKenna what like just say what you're trying to say but like sometimes it's very necessary yeah and I think the fact that it is necessary is just a reflection of like how fucked up and how yeah. demented the white supremacist system that we live in is um I know for me like I think that's a reflection of just the bigger theme of like having throughout my life to try and compartmentalize myself into some appropriate version of myself um, that was palatable for white people. You know, I couldn't be too black. I couldn't, you know, yep. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything that would, you know, make me be the other. I had to fit into yeah. this mold that was appropriate for being surrounded by whiteness and I mean, I almost envy you in the fact that, like, you moved away and were able to, like, get out of that constant, yeah. because it, it, it was traumatic, like, it really is, and, like, not in the way where, like, you know, I had, like, a bunch of violent, like, racial slurs, or, like, I was getting constantly bullied for the way I looked, but in the sense, like, it is violence being surrounded by, like, people who constantly are using, like, microaggressions around you, or who are constantly, you know, creating this racial trauma that I couldn't even begin to process until I was in my twenties. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, I mean, shit, I'm working through it now in therapy, but I mean, I, I do like, I almost envy you and your like, um, your escape from, <laughs> from Orange County. Um, what's because funny, I, I, I hate to cut you off, but what's funny is I noticed a lot of my um, black friends will make comments about me speaking a bit more proper. Like sometimes um, I'll flip my switch and not even acknowledge it. 
and now I'm talking proper to my friends and you know they'll be like McKenna why are you talking like that but a lot of them see I don't hear code switching um I've heard the term ebonics like you turn your ebonics on and off so like sometimes I'll be a little more ratchet with what I say or like a little bit more turned up and then with some things you know I'll be a little bit more like okay don't talk like that let's get it together you need to say what you need to say and say it you know in a nice manner because I'm not going to go around my white family and just be like about whatever it is the topic is because I know they're going to not understand so I have to you know not dumb it down but like put it into words where they'll be able to understand it and vice versa for other groups well, I think that raises an important point about like why I think it's necessary for people of color and like especially black people to have sp- safe spaces. Um, I know mm-hmm. people like call that like liberal propaganda, like liberal tears kind of stuff. But I mean, I honestly do think it's really important for black people to have a space where they feel comfortable enough to, you know, carry on our culture, our Um, perception of the world to be able to alleviate ourselves from again the constant racial trauma that happens living in a white supremacist society um so it's interesting that you say that because like I I do like you know you wouldn't say that stuff in front of our white family um and I do think it's necessary to have like those spaces those safe spaces um as black people and honestly like I think that's a really good way to put into words like how our relationship is like you honestly are a safe space for me like that that mm-hmm. is the best way that I can express it like it's just a safe space to be unapologetically myself um with somebody who is maybe not an exact reflection but definitely a reflection of like my own life experiences and yeah. the things that I've gone through so segueing because we kind of talked about family and that what do you think are some of the struggles of like growing up with a white family and on that, like, what do you think white families with either black or biracial children, black biracial children need to know about, you know, making sure that your, your black child feels appreciated and loved and supported and accepted and acknowledged. Yeah. um, Speaking from personal experience. I'd say there's a difference between just claiming somebody as, you know, your family because you have to versus actually, you know, being there and taking the time to kind of understand a little bit more of like their everyday battle. Um, It's very easy, you know, to claim someone like me being, you know, your daughter or your cousin because, you know, I am and me being black, but there's more to it than just acknowledging that. And I think a lot of times it's easy for them to acknowledge that, but they don't acknowledge what comes with it. And that's what they need to acknowledge more. So I would say like, it's, I get that it's, you know, sometimes hard to understand, you know, the type of things that you and I go through as biracial women. But I think that's where, you know, it's time to step up and kind of take the initiative to learn. Um, And I think that's something important that, you know, families can realize is that like you have to be willing to kind of understand what we go through every day because yes you know I get both the best of both worlds I get to learn about each culture and to be a part of each but it's hard sometimes to balance the two and I think sometimes it can be hard for them to realize that that I can't just shut off my black side or I can't just shut off my white side like that's still a part of me 
whether I'm with my white family or my black family. Um, I don't know. That's something, you know, we both have struggled with in our adulthood. And um, I don't know. I think there's just a lack of understanding or almost uh, some, I don't know, like a not wanting to understand, which can hold people back. And I think that's something that not only can affect the family, but like me as an individual, as someone, you know, who's trying to help you to understand me and, you know, both sides of who I am, because they both make up me, not just one side. I'm not just, you know, white or I'm not just black. I'm both, whether, you know, I am identifying as a black or white woman. Yeah, that just brought up a lot of feelings for me. Um, I think on one hand, like exactly what you said. The funny thing of, about what you said is that in talking to a lot of the black biracial like individuals that I know in my personal life, that experience is kind of universal. Like it's not just, you know, our family that happens yeah. across the board. And I think that speaks to like a bigger issue of <laughs> I'm not arguing against like integration and <laughs> like multiracial marriages, but I mean, I think you know, if you are in a position where you're white and you have a family member who is a person of color, um, I think it's really, really, really important that you do the work to inform yourselves about their experiences and you do the work to make sure that, you know, you're not dismissing one side of their identity um, mm -hmm. just because it's comfortable for you. You know what I mean? Yep. It is your duty as somebody who you know, I mean, honestly, it doesn't have to be your duty, but if you are choosing to be in somebody's life, I think it is your responsibility to make sure that you are putting yourself in the best position to love them and appreciate them and accept them wholly as they are. And if you're not doing that work to do that, then that's a bigger discussion. And yeah, I feel like a lot of times in these family structures, like that isn't happening, that acknowledgement that there even is problems that those kids may face is an issue um and like you said like we've experienced this in our life and it sucks and it hurts and it's not fun and so I mean for anybody listening like who does have a family member who is a different race than them and who may have different life experiences than you like it is your job to step the fuck up especially if you're white like it is your job to step the fuck up and educate yourself because it shouldn't be my job to relay all my trauma to you to make you feel bad for or to make yeah. you like want to learn about me. Like that's yeah. not my responsibility. Yeah, no. And nobody is probably going to be comfortable enough to just step up and tell you every tra traumatic event that's happened. Yeah. That's probably very rare unless you're a therapist. And even then <laughs> it might be rare for me to just straight up spill it. Yeah, and that's like a, a lot of the issue that I see with like a lot of the anti-racist work that's like happening right now, especially like with the white community. Like I feel like a lot of it, a lot of times they're kind of spurred into action once something traumatic to a black person happens or like once it, there's like, you know, some black person gets killed or a person of color, you know, is die or dies in like a really traumatic way. Like I feel like a lot mm -hmm. of times their their is by some sort of like 
black trauma and that to me is really messed up and i think that's like a big issue again about like the way that a lot of like activism right now is happening because it is so reactionary and it's not like people just wanting to be informed for the sake of being informed um it's more so that they can like put the label on themselves like i'm not a racist like i you know i'm not a racist um but yeah (laughs) i was gonna say do you feel similarly (laughs) definitely and i I I know i'm I know I'm a lot more vocal than you on like social media and stuff, but like, do you see similar patterns like in your everyday life? Yeah. And I feel like all the time there's excuses made for people. Um, I think we're at the age and the stage of our generation where the excuses need to go. Like it's time for you to step up and do the work to learn or, you know, you're going to continue to lose people in your life. Oh, I mean, nobody yeah. has to stay in your life. That's kind of the thing. But I, I say you should be, you know, putting forth the effort to learn. I don't yeah. see what the problem in learning is. I mean, I think learning is great. So, yeah. And it's not my goal to make this like a trauma porn podcast. Like, I don't want to bring people on here <laughs> and like talk about their traumas to like spur people to want Mm -hmm. to care like that's exactly the opposite of what I want to do but how do you think like your trauma whether that's familial whether that's with race whether that's with um like sexism like how do you think your trauma has like informed your worldview and I guess like a point that I've been like considering with myself a lot is like do you think we're too far gone like we've had traumatic ass lives. Like, do you think we're too far gone for healing or do you think that like healing is something that we can achieve for the rest of our lives? Um, again, that's heavy. That's I'm sorry. Um, no, I, I don't really know. I think this is going to, I feel like I sound crazy when I say this, but I almost feel like I'm put on this world, not to heal myself, but to heal others. Because I think I have very empathetic parts of myself where a lot of people, you know, are able to share how, uh, you know, experiences that they've gone through that are traumatic that help them. And I almost feel like I get a healing from, you know, when I speak to them and I share my stories of things that I've gone through because I have gone through quite a lot. Um, A lot of things, not even to do a sob story, but a lot of things that a lot of people, you know, wouldn't be able to, you know, pick back up and kind of keep going or stay positive with. Um, but with a lot of that, I've realized that like, I find my strength within myself. And I know that if I can find it within me, these other people can too. Um, and I think a lot of the times we expect healing to have a certain timeline, but with healing, you know, every person's timeline is different. So what takes me a day to heal can take somebody three months. Like I've noticed that, you know, there's some things that I'm, at my age starting to heal with now because I'm acknowledging them in ways that, you know, are beneficial for me. Um, I do think that, you know, as I get older, I'll continue to heal from things um, and be able to do so for the rest of my life. So I want to say that, you know, it'll be, you know, a continuous process, but it's something you have to work with. It's not, you know, something that comes easy. Um, I don't know. It's like, I don't know how to like, say it but I think it's just something that you have to kind of work on personally yeah every person's different 
I know with myself, and I think honestly, like in our generation, we're a lot more aware about like the effects of like trauma, especially like in Mm -hmm. childhood. And so I think overall, like our generation is a lot more willing to heal, which I think is a really positive thing. Like I know myself, like based on traumatic experience that I had as a child, I hated therapy. Like I did not want to go to therapy. I had one bad experience with a therapist and I was like okay I'm never fucking doing this again like you cannot make me but now that I've like you know taken the time to find someone who understands me wholly and is there to help my growth and who can reflect my experiences and who can help me like not only just heal like emotionally mentally but also spiritually like I feel like I've been awakened to this process of healing that is going to last my entire lifetime and like you said I feel a lot of comfort and sanctity in helping others um and I don't know if maybe maybe that's like our our connection on the soul plane I don't want to get too spiritual but you know we've we've definitely encountered each other in another life um but yeah no and I've noticed I don't know if you have too but like with my parents especially like there's just like a lack of like you said there's like a lack of acknowledgement about trauma like they just refuse to even see it they have these like blinders on um and I know it's there because it was passed down to me and I'm having to fucking deal with it so I know that the trauma is there but there's almost like this unwillingness to confront things that are uncomfortable and scary and emotional and that you know are literally passed down through your DNA um so I don't know I I do think, like you said, like healing is possible at any age, but it definitely does require the acknowledgement that there is something to heal. And a lot of oh, sorry, oh sorry, keep going, keep going. (laughs) I'll talk after. (laughs) I don't even remember what I was gonna say. Go ahead. (laughs) Oh, I was gonna say a lot of the times I feel like comparison can play a really big role in it. I think we've become accustomed to comparing our lives to other people's because we want to look at social media and the positives of everything you know it's very easy to look at the positive of one person's life versus yours and think that somebody's life is is better than yours even though you have no idea what's going on beyond the surface yeah so I think a lot of the times when you stop comparing because if you look at it if you really look at it a lot of us would stop suffering if we realize that every person is suffering yeah everybody is going through something so once you realize that you know everyone is going through something you're going to start to feel a little less alone but I think it's hard for us sometimes to take into account that like that's the reality of things because we're so used to looking at the positives of everybody else's life yeah okay well this has been great now I'm going on to the segment of the show where it's do you remember when I hope you thought of your story um (laughs) so this is going to be where you share a story about us this time so the other way around from earlier in the show and yeah just I mean it doesn't have to be funny it doesn't have to be whatever it can be some profound life lesson or something just super mundane so take it away I can't think of a life lesson right now, but one like thing of our childhood that keeps popping up in our head is I feel like we used to have dance-offs at Lake Mission Viejo with our family, but it was like the kids. And it was all of us kids that looked like each other, but again, still didn't look like anybody else. And it would, we would have these big, huge 
like family get togethers, barbecues, the lake, and we'd have our little hip hop music, you know, going. And all of us kids are pop locking, dropping, jerking, <laughs> all types of dances as like, you know, all these little white kids are, you know, around us and our surroundings. But I think that's just so funny. Like even then we were like, we just felt so comfortable with like the people that were around us and having like, you know, people that look like us that we didn't care about like what was going on outside of us. And I feel like some of my best memories as a child or even with you were when we were around like that family, like people that look like us made us feel comfortable. Our created family, the family that we like for ourselves. Or like friends and friends of family that became our cousins. Our play cousins. People don't know what I mean when I say that. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't have play cousins? See, I don't even have to say play cousins because most people are like, oh, okay, your cousins. Yes. Like, you get it. Like, yes. Like, family friends that are close enough to be cousins. See, okay, your people get that. My people don't get that out in North (laughs) Carolina. So, again, we're we're circling back to the difference. Yeah, most people I've met understand it. So, (laughs) that's that's our 180 right here. (laughs) We're circling back to the start of the show. Um, so I guess that's time to wrap up. Thanks for joining me. I'm so happy to have you on here. I'm sure that there will be an episode in the future and we can talk about something that's a lot more fun. Um, but make sure that you guys who are listening and watching, make sure you rate and subscribe and review it because it helps us get discovered. Um, follow the socials. It is unfiltered wkm so unfiltered with kai um but just the initials of it and make sure you check out merch that is available for two cent sports um i don't know if we have merch at this point um (laughs) when this episode is being released but um there's definitely merch (laughs) for the brand as a whole at two cents sports dot shop and yeah tweet us any comments you have um let us know what you think um super excited to see you guys next week Thank you.